Today in the Marshall Pro Podcast, we have your listener Q&A episode, The Week in IndyCar. Thanks again for sending in so many awesome, funny, interesting, and unique questions as we normally have. I'm going to give you a couple items here before we get rolling with everything that you submitted in this episode brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Woo! So I'm recording this on a Wednesday evening, almost 7 p.m. Beautiful, beautiful, and slow sunset here in the San Francisco Bay Area, looking out west on the hills. Actually, looking out in the hills that I kind of sort of grew up around in the peninsula. So, yeah, in a happy and appreciative state of mind, if you caught the guest Q&A episode that I posted with Indianapolis Motor Speedway President Doug Bowles, you know that I mentioned we had a bit of a milestone this week, this coming one year since we had a pretty crazy thing take place with my wife and I and the cancer we'd been fighting going absolutely haywire and forcing her to be rushed to the hospital, which led me to pack faster than ever at the media center and tear everything down and go back to the hotel, get everything put together there after being in Indy for almost two weeks at that point and then blast home. And this is the journey we've been on since then of looking after her, all the crazy travail she's been through. So just wanted to acknowledge that here up front because you all have been with me for that ride. I realize that some of you may have started listening recently and might not exactly know what I'm talking about, but I know most of you have been here and been so incredibly supportive and just really, uh, really amazing during some super tough times where her survival was genuinely uh, a question multiple occasions where her survival was in question so here at this uh one year and a day milestone just want to say thank you thank you for becoming like our extended family thousands upon thousands of you and to the show's supporters and our sponsors and our guests thanks to everybody for making this a thing that really is a nice break when things get a little bit hard on the home front Last week, announced that with our fourth anniversary taking place of this podcast, wanted to do a giveaway. This brought to you by TorontoMotorsports.com with some fourth anniversary t-shirts and some stickers and some other fun stuff. Said that I was going to give away four of those gift packs and then do another four this week. And I've changed that. Uh, we got the go-ahead to return to physical therapy this week, which is pretty awesome for my wife. So we've gone from things being kind of slow and relaxed for a change, not too many weekly appointments, to now heading out the door at least four times a week. And so, honestly, family, I just don't have time. I don't have the mental bandwidth to track another giveaway. So I'm just going to go with all of you who submitted something. I asked you all to pick your favorite episode 
from the 800 plus that we have put out, all those that happen to live on marshallpruittpodcast.com, and just share what it was about your favorite episode that we've done so far on the good old tweeters uh, using the hashtag MPP4TH. And so I'm just going to give you a quick roll call and ask you all to send me a direct message with your email address so I can share it with torontomotorsports.com. And they're going to hook you up with about 50 bucks worth of anniversary giveaway goodies. So, Lawrence Cunningham, come on down. Our man Vincent1701, come on down. Ryan Terpstra, yes, my podcast's spirit vegetable. Not spirit animal, spirit vegetable. Ryan Terpstra, come on down. Uh, B, the letter B, at Beard Nagel, Nagel. Come on down, Kevin DeVries. Adam Klinger, of course, Adam, you you got a lot of kids to look after, so we got to get you some swag. Eric Harkrader, uh, we're going to also throw in here C-Max C5, that being at Charlie 2011-0179. And as we get down to the final ones, we're going to go to Matt Philpot. Thank you, Matt. Come on down. Send me that email address through dm john foreman you as well uh we gotta go with roger redifer for sure posing with a photo of your driven dvd uh send that over here and i said we're going to give away for one week and for the next that totals out to eight well i can't count too good so uh i'm rattling off names that exceed eight so yeah breaking my own little thing uh isosceles that being at isosceles d uh, you are in the old party here uh let's see tyler duke and that that winds things up so tyler you're the last of the we'll just call it eight even though it isn't all of y'all send me a direct message preferably on facebook uh, on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. Send me a little communique there and get me your email address and I will connect all of you with torontomotorsports.com and they're going to give you free stuff because we love you and we appreciate all of you and hey, that's what we're doing for our fourth anniversary. Last thing before we get rolling here with the show had some news today come down that was not a surprise by any means, that being Road America is now being pushed back to the slot once held by Toronto. We have a double header, which is pretty awesome, at Road America now here over the July 10 through 12 slot. Toronto could very well, no guarantees but could very well take the spot held by Portland, keeping in mind that Toronto and Portland and Mid-Ohio and St. Petersburg are all promoted by the same organization, Green Savory Race Promotions. So could, could have Portland having to look for a new date, uh, knowing that their governor in the state of Oregon have he has not been keen on the idea of major live sports taking place. So going to take Road America off of its 
late June slot, move it to Toronto's. Toronto could in turn move to Portland's at the uh, the beginning of September. Richmond, which admittedly we've been hearing for a while now, was not going to happen. Uh, that is not going to happen. And for those who have been following the shutdown in Virginia, again, might not come as a surprise but separate from what the state has done in choosing to open things or gradually open things in phases, there's just been a lot of talk behind the scenes that, yeah, this is, no matter what happens there, it sounds like this race is just simply not going to happen. So should have something formal coming to you from IndyCar Thursday or Friday, but uh, overnight got word that, Road America was indeed moving and some domino effects in place. So the biggest takeaway here is get ready for more because as I wrote, I don't know, a week or so ago, maybe on racer more on the uh, border angle of things being shut down, but uh, just get ready because this is a really direct time we live in where The people who run the racing series that we love, in this case IndyCar, are not in charge (laughs) of when, how, or if their races will be held. It is 100% out of their hands. It's been awesome in certain cases where we've had uh, some local governments, statewide uh, governance and such, work with or express an interest in such things happening. But by and large, IndyCar, IMSA, NASCAR, run on down the line. They can put out schedules tomorrow that say this is going to happen here, there, or wherever else. And it is all 100% subject to change. We know for what we've seen with the coronavirus, some encouraging news of peaks being crested and possibly on the downhill slide in some areas. Nonetheless, we don't know what the coming weeks or months are going to be like in terms of additional outbreaks, second waves, all things we hope do not happen. But just saying, as I've said before in the podcast, if you are booking flights, hotels, rental cars, whatever, whenever there's an option, to cancel with no penalty (laughs) please take them because i can tell you that this is not going to be it who knows maybe indycar will be fortunate and no more changes will happen but as of right now other than texas in the beginning of june the rest of the month the two other races that were meant to be run later in the month are now off the schedule for where they were one of them in richmond gone altogether Road America pushed back a couple weeks, and Toronto, certainly no longer in its original spot, hope to have that back, but work on down the list. Who knows? Simply, who knows? And there's likely some changes coming with IMSA as well. So I I would love to be the bearer of good news here. Um, If y'all have been reading your unbiased news faithfully, Uh, you will know that nothing of what I just said should be a surprise. So we're going to use our man Juan Montoya's favorite line here. 
It is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. All right. Let us get rolling with your questions. And we're going to start with Derek Bartoshek and also a practiced observer from Reddit and Chapin17 from Reddit as well. All on the topic of because we need to start with something humorous. Ferrari and IndyCar. Uh, across the... Actually, Joshua Ponce, you sent in one as well. Sorry, I missed that in here. Uh, yeah, they all kind of flirt around a central topic. Josh saying, I hear Ferraris think of entering IndyCar sometime soon. I'll believe that when pigs fly, but I digress. Uh, practice Observer says, what are the top three lessons that Roger Penske has learned from the way IndyCar negotiated with Porsche last year? that he will apply with his dealings with Ferrari now. Uh, Derek, curious about Scudier Ferrari team principal Mattia Bonotto confirming they're exploring joining IndyCar in 2022 when the new regulations kick in. Wondering what that might look like. Uh, Do you see a scenario where they say, we will join if we can build the exact displacement hybrid engine we want, or we will join if we're allowed to develop our own chassis? Surely this would make some other European manufacturers Take a look at IndyCar as well. Uh, and then, yeah, I'll come back to Chapin 17s as well on this. So just stating what I know to be fact, this is fittingly a red herring. This is a absolute, perfectly colored red herring. We have a situation, actually I need to roll this in to explain, from Chapin 17. This is all stemming from Formula One's upcoming budget cap. Meant to be introduced in 2021, as he mentions, would roughly cut Ferrari's F1 spending by 64% from 400 million euros to 145 million euros, which means they won't be able to and won't need to have as many staff working on the F1 program. This means they would have to lay off hundreds of employees, which wouldn't be a good look. And Italian law dictates that you can't have mass layoffs unless the company is in deficit. So another factory program would help protect employees. It goes on to add, I think an LMDH, IMSA prototype program, would be more likely. But a man can dream. Uh, Yeah, so red herring for sure. This is... Ferrari's way of politely threatening and pushing back at those who are insistent upon introducing this budget cap. There's a couple wrinkles here to grasp in Chapin 17's explanation of labor laws and such. It's brilliant, perfect, and thank you for that explanation. It really does set the table here. What we have is a company, a racing team in Ferrari that does not want to reduce its budget. And they're not alone in Formula One. Uh, It costs extremely ridiculous amounts of money. It has for the vast majority of my life. And as long as they can, quote, afford it, these teams do not want to give this up. Not all the teams can, though. That's why some are pushing for a giant reduction. There's also some pretty smart people saying, hey, 
I know you like spending it because you can find it and get it, but this might not be the most sustainable thing. So let's get ahead of this and bring this number down to call it reality. If 145 million euros a year would ever be considered reality, you could run, I don't know, you could run an IndyCar series with what? 60 plus cars in it per season with this budget cap from a single F1 team, right? So just scale. Uh, it's crazy. It's just crazy. It might be 70 to 75 full-time Indy cars. Uh, yeah. So just nuts, just nuts. Nonetheless, we have a situation where Ferrari does not want to stop spending the amount of money that it does. It does not want to downsize. It does not want to have fewer employees. I would say it's a bit rich for Ferrari to suggest that they love their employees so much that they're fighting to keep them uh, all in and around this budget cap. And gosh and golly, if it were to happen well, then we'd need to take those employees and go race with them elsewhere from a practical standpoint that might be a a justification but from a realistic standpoint no they do not want to make any changes they want to keep doing what they're doing and again they're not alone in this where this starts to come off the rails a bit let's say we're going to start an indycar team great awesome well what does a two-car IndyCar team look like if we're talking employees total head count well again there's 15-ish to 20 per car you can add in management layers you can add in hospitality layers human resources communications graphics paint composites machine shop Uh, You could maybe, if you wanted to, get the number for a two-car team up to 30 people per entry, maybe even 35. So if you just wanted to go nuts with a two-car team, you could possibly spin that number up to, we'll just say 60 to 70 to 75 people. It would be mad. It would be completely mad, but you could do that. Keeping in mind that Andretti Autosport with five entries, full-time entries in IndyCar, is looking to move 140, 150 people uh, per event. So again, talk 20, 25, 30, maybe even 35 people per entry. Cool. So Ferrari trying to do as we mentioned here uh, could run. A two-car IndyCar team, we would think, right? I mean, they could do three or more, again, if they wanted to. But you're looking at most F1 teams, major F1 teams that have 700 employees, 800, 1,000. Big numbers. So if we're talking about people to move onto a separate program to keep them employed under this labor law, and again, uh, it'd be strange to run an IndyCar team out of Italy, so... How does this work if those people uh, now are working full-time in Indianapolis or similar outside the country? Again, I don't know how that works exactly, but maybe they get credit for it. Nonetheless, 
this being a true, genuine, stated interest, we're exploring, I'll just say this, exploring my ass. <laughs> I, I love the idea of Ferrari coming here. I really do. Who doesn't? It'd be amazing. What I don't like is IndyCar being used as a pawn in Ferrari's bargaining efforts to try and get F1 to relax and relent on the budget cap and the downturn in employees. Now, another thing here, uh, they could spend less on other things. They don't have to trim the labor force. Um, maybe there'd be some, a modest amount, but you know, if we're talking where do you spend that money, well, uh, I don't think F1 is trying to do this to get teams to fire people. I think they're trying to rein in overall costs, excess, uh, technologically, just in all capacities. If this is going to be a default for Ferrari, they say, well, we're just going to keep everything the same as we can with the cars and technology and all the excess there and just slice a bunch of people off the payroll. Yeah, again, that that would be rather a rather dickish approach. So, couple of things here to close. It's a red herring. This is nothing but a attempt at applying pressure to F1 to back off of this. If they wanted to run an IndyCar program, they could last year. They could this year. They could have at any other point in time. They haven't. So, that's why I, of the many other reasons that this stands out as complete nonsense and garbage, uh, you've had the opportunity to do this forever. You haven't. Of course, we know about the mid-80s car that they built that went nowhere. Yeah, again, actually coming here to do this, uh, they have not entered Formula, I'm sorry, IndyCar as a full-time entrant ever. So they've been Formula One. That has been their thing. They have had some dalliances elsewhere. Great. This, I just really can't stand because it's using IndyCar in a pawn-like capacity. So coming back to Derek's note here about surely this would make some other European manufacturers take another look at IndyCar as well. I don't believe at all that that is what would happen again those european manufacturers have all met with jay fry and his team discussed the possibilities of coming here the opportunities to come here the new engine formula etc jay and mark miles and a few others did a whole barnstorming thing what year and a half ago met with everybody ferrari included and they're all patently aware of what IndyCar is doing with hybrid engines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, this cropping up magically on the topic of hey, we're exploring IndyCar while discussing the F1 budget cap. Yeah, it's garbage. Um, quick other item or two here. Uh, IndyCar is not going to let anyone do anything different, engine displacement wise, hybrid system wise chassis wise ain't happening so if by chance any manufacturer were to 
say, well, we'll be there if you let us be different than everyone else. That's the part where IndyCar says, no thanks. Or they open that up for all manufacturers because there's no way that a Chevy and Honda are going to bind themselves to something that another manufacturer is allowed to do while they cannot. That simply won't happen. So IndyCar either lets everybody do their own thing or nobody. And at least for where we expect things to go, friends, with pretty soft economy, really weak automotive sales, do we honestly think that the Chevys and Hondas of the world are going to be flush with cash and say, yes, coming out of this pandemic and in the midst of a recession or whatever it ends up being, Let's crack things open so we can spend a ton more money than we have. None of those things fall into what I would consider reality. The note here from a practiced observer about Roger Penske learned from how the Wendy car negotiated with Porsche. Uh, I don't think there's any major thing to learn there because Roger was not a part. Roger wasn't the guy. Um, handling that not saying that he didn't have any help in facilitation but I would say that Roger really doesn't need to look back at anything that IndyCar did prior to his purchasing of it uh, Roger has the connections and the relationships with the CEOs of every major auto company that we think might be here um, so I'm not too concerned about that or how that might get applied to Ferrari so the last thing I'll save for you, and I have saved this for the end of this Ferrari and IndyCar topic. So I had a discussion with someone at IndyCar earlier this earlier this week, late last week. I, th- I don't honestly remember, but this is with someone who would know, right? Said, hey, just out of curiosity. Has Ferrari spoken with you? Has Ferrari actually reached out and said, Hey, we're exploring. Could you give us some updated information? Cost projections, uh, timelines, right? Since we're talking 2022, even though there was that barnstorming tour of Europe a year and a half ago, whenever it was. Could you give us some updated, you name it. Hey, so this is meant to happen this year and this month, and then this is going to happen here. So if you were to come in for 2022, this is when certain things would be made available on a engine side or a chassis component or a hybrid. We need These are the basics, right? You can already assume that IndyCar spelled out the, well, this is what it would cost to supply, and this is what an annual budget can run. So those are all great. But again, coming back and saying, all right, so give us your timeline for when these things would start to happen so we can look and see on what we would want to do with producing a motor and when a hybrid system could be in our hands to marry that to the combustion engine, all these things. I couldn't get a positive answer out of the series. Uh, They actually didn't want to answer it. And not because 
there was some big top secret movement in place. Uh, the reaction that I was given was very much of, Hey, it's a 50, 50. It could happen. It might not happen. Who knows? Okay. Got it. Can you tell me if the most basic thing, a manufacturer that has just expressed interest in the media would then do by reaching out to the thing they have expressed an interest in to talk. Has anyone called? Has Bonotto picked up the phone, sent an email, a text? Who knows? A letter. Did a letter show up in the mailbox from Scuderia Ferrari? Any of that. And I was hoping to hear a yes. Thought I might hear a no. I couldn't get a positive answer. So, and it wasn't like, I can't talk about it. Can't talk about it. This is this is sensitive topic. It was the exact opposite of the conversation we had. Uh, so, as I interpreted it, there's been no outreach from Ferrari to IndyCar. And again, I'd love to write the story that they did. That'd be an amazing thing to write. And who knows? Maybe they're busy. Maybe that phone call is going to take place next week. I don't know. I can at least tell you that for right now, when every Formula One journalist that I know and have spoken with and those who are pretty serious players in Formula One who I've communicated with, they've all said, this is a red herring. This is absolutely using IndyCar as bait to try and threaten F1. The thing that would debunk that and prove all of them wrong would be some sort of confirmation that they have indeed communicated with the series. I I couldn't find it. So I hope they do. I'd love to hear that they do. And maybe that's coming. Maybe they're on the phone right now as we're recording this and you're listening. I don't know. But yeah, uh, for our major opening topic of the week. <sighs> yeah. Um, I am not expecting the prancing horse to be here any time soon. Hope they would have heard nothing to make me believe that they will. Let's go to Joseki 100, our pal. Says, hey, Marshall, I hope everything is fine at home. A couple of questions about spam. That being Arrow McLaren SP. So Zach Brown mentioned some days ago that Jensen Button was scheduled to drive a third car at Road America before COVID-19 happened. JB is a great character and an even better driver, so that would have been extremely good for IndyCar, but I'm a bit puzzled by Spam's plan. Officially, they're a two-car team with an aim of expanding to three cars in the next year, yet we know Alonzo is meant to be in a third car for a few races, and now we know Button 2 is in the mix. That would have been a de facto part-time third car program, something they denied was in their plans. Also, little sidebar for y'all here, if you happen to listen last week, I said this would be a crazy thing to do from the outset. I realize that Texas is the official outset of the year, but jumping off with this new relationship uh, with Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson by pushing out to three cars in your second race, like, again, as I mentioned, my sensibilities, uh, it's the last thing I would do. But clearly, my sensibilities are not universal. 
Uh, Joseki goes on to say, I'm even more puzzled about next year when they should have the third full-time entry and also some Jimmy Johnson guest races. Unless I'm missing something, that adds up to three full-time entries and a fourth entry shared between Alonzo Button and Jimmy Johnson on a fairly big part-time schedule. What's your opinion on this? Yeah, well, it isn't particularly different from what I stated last week, Joseki. I think they're in such an amazing position with McLaren's relationship with Fernando Alonso and Jensen Button and Zach Brown's relationship with Jimmy Johnson through Zach and McLaren in this new blended Brady Bunch style IndyCar program. We have the ability to do some things that honestly few other teams can from a high value driver name promotion aspect. Whoa, Alonzo this weekend, Button's going to be here in a month, Jimmy Johnson's going to be there the month after, wherever it is. I mean, this is amazing, huge stuff. Man, those sure sound like 2021 things to me. Again, my sensibility for taking a team that is radically different from the one that closed out the season last year at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca and hasn't had enough time, nearly enough time together on track to get to know one another and work together as a real cohesive unit. Uh, Yeah throwing in major variables like this and major attention because trust me any one of those three names turning up at whatever track is going to capture all of the attention all the media are going to run over there indy 500 maybe not so much but regardless they're going to get big big attention is that something you really want to weather while you're trying to get your two young drivers up to speed. One of them's a rookie. One of them did, what, five, six, seven races last year, but is still kind of like a rookie. You got relationships with engineers to figure out. You got some new staff and personnel. You have this blended management type thing going on. You've got performance engineers and other layers of support from McLaren looking in, yada, yada, yada. Do you want to throw a third car into that mix? Uh, again, if I'm applying what makes sense to me, I would say, hey, end of the year, right? We're getting down to the last couple of races. We'll consider throwing a third car out there because at least by then we will have found our feet. Uh, Not before. But again, that's not the sensibility that is being shared here. So that doesn't mean I'm right or wrong. Just means very different views on the timing on when such a thing should be done and that all being shared with you from the mindset of a person who used to manage IndyCar teams fairly poorly. Uh, Joseki also mentions, I heard back in February that Alonzo signing for McLaren drastically changed Spam's plan for the 500 and they managed to get some sort of hidden technical alliance with Andretti Autosport. Do you know anything about it? Uh, yeah, I know nothing about that and i do not believe that anything like that happened whatsoever i can tell you that if honda were to learn about that uh there would be some major poop storm stuff happening here for sure so uh i would not lend any credence to that um where do we go next we're going to racing schedules and scott mclaughlin ryan terpstra 
says MPI matched up the IMSA Australian supercars and IndyCar schedules. It says the weekends with no overlap are Texas, Road America, Indy 500, Portland, and St. Pete for Scotty McLaughlin. Well, we need to take Road America off that because that's no longer in that position. But you did send this in before this news happened, so uh, no biggie there. Uh, Portland as well could be, uh, who knows what Portland is. Could Portland be Toronto? Uh, could Portland be Portland? We don't know. So fewer possible. We're not exactly sure how many. While IndyCar figures out what may or may not be its calendar. Scott mentions, Scott mentions, Ryan mentions, uh, do you think McLaughlin makes his debut in an IndyCar this year? And if so, where? Uh, says hashtag me personally. I think Penske is going to, fi- going to find a way to make the Indy 500 happen. Yeah, I I don't think they would because that would be too similar to the spam situation of, hey, you got a really good thing with four cars and let's not try and overcook things by going to five. I did speak with the team this morning because I've been asked to chase this more than once uh, and they said, we don't know. We still want them to drive for us this year. We just don't know when. And so I think once we get through the confirmation of the what will be the fourth schedule of the year, by the way, I'm um, staring at the schedules I have on the wall. I've marked them with a red Sharpie. The original schedule for the calendar year is number one. Then there's a second, which I've marked number two, surprise. And now number three, I am going to have to print a number four and put that on the wall. I'll take a photo of that and post it. Um, that's the thing, obviously, overstatement here. That's the reason why they can't exactly pin down when Scott's going to drive, because they don't know what circuits will be available for him to use based on conflicts. Most of all, they don't know when borders will be open uh, to come here, return, 14-day quarantine, who knows, As I was told, it is more of a travel thing than anything right now. Uh, But once we get a finer idea of what schedule options exist, well, then we can zero in a little bit further. We're going to the Virtual 500. Connor Kennard says, It may be too late to ask, but any chance IMS could host a open virtual Indy 500 this weekend and make it available to the top 33 who qualify across all skill levels. Even make it a charitable event where buy-in goes to help the small track vendors losing revenue from the weekend. Well, Connor, that's a awesome idea. There's no way on the planet Earth it's going to happen, unfortunately, and not because it lacks the awesomeness, aforementioned awesomeness. IndyCar is very short-staffed right now. Very short-staffed. In the ways, in the, in the department's, where creating and facilitating and executing such a thing like this would be needed. So if we're talking about, hey, we need to go hit the race track and do something, they got lots of people, lots of people. The folks to put on something like this, which is more in the marketing and promotions and communications realm, uh, yeah, not there. So... That's why this is a non-starter, unfortunately. I can tell you that a plan was in motion. I don't know how far it got, 
but I do know that a plan was in motion, one that I think I might have mentioned at the outset of the Corolla virus. What in flat earth is the Corolla virus? Uh, thanks, Brett Terhune, for your weekly humor, by the way. Um, there was a plan being discussed to bring a field of 33 IndyCar drivers to Indianapolis in 11 rows of three in simulators and hold the Indy 500, the E Indy 500, on Sunday. It was a real thing. It was a real idea. It was a real plan. Again, I think I threw that out just talking out of my butt for all I know, some of, for all I fail to remember. Some of you all might have sent that idea in as well. I think a number of us probably had the same idea of, hmm, well, if the Indy 500 isn't happening, uh, maybe we could have a virtual one. And so this exact idea that we threw out, 33 simulators, the 33 IndyCar drivers, how do you get the 33 and who gets bumped again? I don't, you know, we didn't delve that far into figuring that out, but I do know for a fact that this is something that IndyCar was investigating and I think somewhat wisely chose not to because if you think about <laughs> social distancing three rows wide, six feet gap in between, plus the six feet back for those 11 rows. I mean, the idea, I believe, was to try and, I think as I floated it, was just in one of the garages um, as you walk out from Gasoline Alley onto Pit Lane. You have the what were built as the Formula One garages to use some of those, but in thinking about it with social distancing, I mean, you'd almost need to put those 33 on the front straight in their some sort of starting positions there but again glare rain wind i don't know uh extension cords in general you know again i don't know it seems a little easier when you're kind of in an enclosed space but it was something that was genuinely floated connor and then it was ended as an idea and unfortunately there's nothing in its place i can mention that there is the legends 500 that is happening this weekend. Mario Andretti is taking part in it. Tony Kanon and this person and that. Like, it's really awesome. Uh, it should be awesome. So I, even though I'm not a massive esports spectator guy, will probably tune into a little bit of it. Um, and yeah, so if you're craving something, that's probably it. I don't remember all the details of where it's going to be broadcast. I do know that I'll be writing about it tomorrow, Thursday, for Road and Track. So when I get those details, if you don't already know about it, I'm sure you do. Uh, you might check out roadandtrack.com. I'm going to drink some liquid so I stop sounding like I'm going through puberty. Let's go to Easy D12. 1595 says hypothetically if we only get a few races in and we can't finish the season will indycar crown a champion for the 2020 season or will the season be extended to include 2021 for a 2020 and 2021 championship awesome question uh in a conversation i had i think today 
yeah, today with Jay Fry. Um, I know I posed this question. It might have been after reading this question that you sent in. Uh, I don't truly remember, but let's say your question is what prompted it. Um, said, hey, what what's the threshold? Jay said, look, we're bound and determined to hold between 12 and 15 races. Uh, do we really want things to spill into next year? No. Um, we really want to try and wrap up this season as this season. So, again, in this proviso of all provisos, hey, make sure you can cancel your flights and this is and that's and get refunds because we don't know how many adjustments are going to be needed. Am I going to be printing a 5th, 6th, and 7th adjusted calendar? I don't know. Who can really say? We know what they want to do, which is hold as many races as they can, crown a 2020 champ, and kick 2020 in the butt and say farewell to it. Could some of these things need to happen? Again, who knows? I know it's not what they want, though. That is clear, and it would be strange if they did want that. So I guess I'm, this is a an episode of at least two, duh, overstating the obvious items for you. Uh, where do we go next? Where do we go next? We go to, you know what? What do we have? Yeah, we got a good amount of questions to go, but not a crazy amount. Uh, we're going to go to John... Ranjow, as I crowned you last week, I believe, because I can't get your last name right. Um, and you even signed it off as John Ranjow, which is awesome. Uh, can I get your thoughts on the recent controversy surrounding General Chuck Yeager's apparent disapproval of Connor Daly's throwback theme honoring him? Uh, I am clueless to it, John. I didn't see it at all. So... I don't know what he disapproved of. I can assume, based on some of Chuck's past viewpoints and opinions, that there aren't many on the planet Earth that would qualify as bigger badasses than him. So, I don't know. Was it something along the lines of not thinking a car was really deserving of it? I don't know. Um, So, I kind of got nothing for you here because I wasn't aware of it. And just a a super, super quick sidebar with stuff like this. um, Don't assume that I saw it because if it's social media based, I don't spend a lot of time on social media. If I'm not posting something, Uh, I'll check. But as for like, Hey, what's everyone else doing? Uh, I'm one of those guys who kind of sticks to my lane more than anything and interacts with those who interact with me instead of going out and seeing who's saying what on whatever person's feed. So uh, with something like this, don't hesitate to paste in a link to it or a screen capture. So at least I have a clue because you guys know me. I struggle to have a clue. Uh, Let's see. We're going to go to your number two item here. Now that the new day has successfully won the Xavier Woods voice, W-W-E-N-T-T IndyCar Tag Team championships from team penske and who 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 is next to challenge for the belt from indycar side always big prayers for you and your wife thank you john who 
indeed do we throw up there to challenge. I I like the comically sized tag team of Graham Rahal, as I call him, Graham Rahal and Takuma Sato, right? Uh, boy, you want to talk about the Laurel and Hardy of WWE opponents. Uh, we have big old tall skyscraper guy, and then we have inverse not skyscraper guy. That would be pretty fun and pretty funny. My my sincere concern, though, is Takuma's too nice of a guy, right? Even though it, it's fake, uh, he just, yeah, he's not a ragey guy. And Graham, on the other hand, though, I can see him just going like full, oh, my goodness, we need to taser that guy because he's just on a rampage. Now, granted, he'd get his ass smeared by the new day but until that happened he would at least be going completely insane so i don't think they win i think the belt stays uh with the new day and for those of you who don't follow the wwe i don't apologize i love it uh i have for most of my life same with my wife it's one of those bonding things in the pruitt household so uh yeah that's my thought here mr ranjow and thank you for accepting my new last name for you because I seem to always fail pronouncing Wonar or Woinar, however I should do it properly with the way uh, the Lord gave you your last name. Going to get into a couple of fun ones here as well. Michael Makowski, MP, akin to what Porsche did with its 919 Evo at the Nürburgring and Spa, where they threw out the rule book and modified the car to go as fast as possible. What speeds could be achieved at IMS if an IndyCar team was able to modify a current IndyCar to go as fast as possible? Oh, that's a fun one. So the main thing right up front here, uh, I couldn't tell you what the speeds would be, Michael, because we don't know. (laughs) We just, we can guess and assume. I can only really tell you about what they would do which is use similar methodology to what Porsche did with its LMP1 hybrid Le Mans winning prototype, the 919 Evo. And that was remove all engine restrictions and produce crazy insane horsepower, both internal combustion engine and hybrid. So I believe it was at something in the range of 1,100 horsepower. So first thing we would have, whether it was a Chevy or a Honda, we would have that thing dialed up to not stun, but kill turbo boost modes mode Uh, revs right now. They cap the rev limits at 12,000 RPM. My guess is that is something that given the ability, they, although Spinning more revs costs a ton of money because you have everything internally changes and the development time to make sure all the internal parts stay inside. It's a lot of money. But if we're just talking going nuts, you'd want to spin that thing harder and higher. You'd want to force a ton more boost into the thing in terms of fuel, liquid nitro. I mean, I, you know, gunpowder just everything small thermonuclear device that would power the thing for sure 
we would be looking at rubber, I'm sure. There'd certainly be some adjustments to the rubber since we're just talking not 500 miles. We're not talking anything like we're just talking maximum speed, disposable speed. Yeah, we'd be going some pretty interesting tires that would be very gummy um, that who knows how long they lasted, but it would be, you know, 10 laps or less kind of scenario. Uh, I shouldn't say 10 laps, 10 miles or less. Uh, something very short, but offered a ton of grip in the corners. Obviously, we'd be concerned about rolling grip or rolling speed on the front straight, back straight as well with increased grip from those tires, really not helping anything. We're already crazy trimmed out arrow-wise, right? Downforce numbers are way down. Drag, uh, Drag is still a bit of an issue here. So really, if we're talking maximum speed, we have a car that on the straights, pretty happy. The limitation, though, is certainly found in the corners. So the ability to rapidly pile on downforce through the corners and then take it off and add it and such. You know, we're talking a DRS type system, but interestingly, probably working the inverse of DRS, where DRS will have a car running with a lot of downforce and then peel it off on the straights. I think we'd be doing the opposite of indeed doing the majority of the running with bare minimum and then throwing up some wing elements to create downforce to get through the corners faster. But that wouldn't just be rear, that would be front as well. I would imagine there would be some hydraulic-type action as well to lift the front of the car on the straights to help break the seal with the ground and bleed off and reduce underbody downforce. Again, just talking maximum speed, but then bring that back into place once we were about to corner. So, I mean, really the biggest area where I would think money would be spent and development time would be consumed would be in drag reduction with the current car, since that's what you mentioned, the current car. It is still too draggy for anyone's uh, liking. And so I'd say we would see some very custom bodywork. Can't do much about the Delara DW12 tub, but there's nothing saying that some creative tack-on items to the tub couldn't be done. Uh, But yeah, most of all, when I talk to Indy 500 uh, race engineers, race engineers at the 500, talking about improving speed, increasing speed, you name it, we get to places, have gotten to places with this current car, where there's just not much more to take off of it. There's not much more rear wing angle to take out. Uh, We are trying to shed as much drag and downforce as we can, and we've just reached the limit uh, of how low we can go. So, again, uh, we need to look at something here where it'd be all new body work, uh, the craziest, lowest drag possible, Methods to shed downforce on the straights. Method to add downforce as cornering began because that is where we scrub a lot of speed off. Probably want some specialish tires from Firestone uh, to help 
in the corners. But again, what is the trade-off? Do we actually create too much grip on the straight? Uh, certainly a horsepower spike as much as possible. And then also some sort of crazy, nasty fuel to throw into the thing. So that would be it, Michael. As for what speed we could achieve, who knows? I mean, I, eh, I would not even have an idea for you. 255, 260, could it be more? I don't know. Depends how all the envelopes I just mentioned were pushed. Uh, also, I guess one other thing, too, would be weight. Man, it's a heavy car. Man, it's a heavy car. Obviously, all the ballast comes out. Uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously. Balance, chassis balance is another thing, too. So uh, would want to re- move as much weight as possible. Probably go for the lightest driver as possible. Uh, this could be a pretty expensive thing, man. <laughs> like a really expensive thing if we're talking about the current car. Uh, J.J. Gertler. J.J. Gertler. I'm going to try and sing your name from now on because you deserve it. It says, MP, with today's spec chassis formula, it looks like you couldn't have a real innovation like the STP turbine car or even the diagonal wings that the Vels Parnelli Jones team tried out for a while. Yeah, I'm old enough to have seen them run. Although after they pulled those wings off. In your experience, who is the engineer or aerodynamicist in the garage now who thinks most out of the box and maybe tries to get away with things that would be great new ideas if they were allowed? Ooh, that's a really awesome one, JJ. Ben Bretzman comes to mind, for sure. His brother Eric Bretzman as well, for sure. Those are those are two men who know the rule book, know its limitations, and who never fully accept those limitations from a, a mental approach standpoint. Uh, just always thinking about new and different ways. The guy known as Craig Hampson certainly fits into that category. He's just really ultra, ultra creative. His mind is always thinking of what can be done. Yes, read the rule book nine times, going to read it a tenth. What other things could we do? And so that's just with the current formula. These are guys who... You know, this might be a bit of a generic answer, but if you see a race engineer in IndyCar that has a little bit of gray in their beard or in their hair, you can rightly assume they worked in cart, worked in champ car, and come from an era, learned their craft at a time where creativity not maybe the turbine level but real creativity was allowed have an idea go out to the shop and make it or have it created to then throw in this wind tunnel or whatever it might be Uh, just really truly like oh great idea let's go do it let's give it a shot let's see if it works Uh, you have a lot of these folks who while they can't do it now uh, really have made things from their with their hands, shaped metal, uh, shaped composites, created bodywork, uh, done you know really inventive things with dampers and suspension and on and on and on and on. So I know it's a bit of a non-specific answer, but I would say JJ, if you just look at the 
engineers, and when you mentioned aerodynamicists, there really aren't any aerodynamicists who specifically just do that. Uh, maybe, who knows, maybe there's one or two that I don't know of, but um, that tends to fall under the race engineering uh, discipline. But if you look at any of the older heads on the timing stand in a race engineering role, I can guarantee you these are folks that used to do this are familiar with it, took pride in what they would do and how they did things differently from the others when the rules allowed it and would just dive right back in and do really fun things if they could. I'm going to get here to Matthew Ponto as I come down to my last handful of questions. Uh, This is Marshall. Uh, do you know how Michaela Alboreto ended up in the IRL in 1996? He says, for a new series, I was interested in promoting young American drivers and racing solely on ovals. And he says, uh, one of the last drivers I would think of uh, in racing would be a 39-year-old Italian who was a 14-year Formula One veteran with no oval experience. Uh, also goes on to say sorry i'm going to scroll the page here uh do you know if he had any interest in cart as well or was the irl his first choice uh what i happen to remember here matthew and i was a big michaeli alberto fan Uh, i love the guy i thought he was pretty darn cool uh what i remember of this situation and i really hope that my brain is not farting too much here is his link with the Scandia Racing Team. Um, This is something Andy Evans, who was racing in the IRL, I think they also did some kart races too, but uh, was primarily IRL, uh, was racing uh, Ferrari 333 SPs in kind of the forerunner of the American Le Mans Series and Grand Am, was also running in the freaking NHRA right this guy was just everywhere and so uh, we have a a situation where uh, scandia looking to make use of skilled drivers uh, also there being a little bit of a euro kind of i don't know fascination might be the word um i know that mckayley ended up being a pretty good resource for them to drive a variety of things i don't know the story of how he came into their hemisphere so that's one thing that i do hope to learn uh, i think i have a book on his life it might be an italian though but i, I really should uh, take a deeper look at that but i do know that uh, he is someone who from a scandia standpoint uh, was just looked at as a great talent that could be used um in more than one discipline like you though it was a little bit strange to think of him uh being thrown into the good old earl on ovals but keep in mind this was three years after formula one world champion nigel mansell came over with zero oval experience and himself i mean what a boy by 93 what he would have been a 13-ish year 12 13 year veteran uh, as well, as experienced, if not maybe slightly less experienced than McKaylee. Um, Nigel had come over three years before and reminded those who weren't aware or didn't know or had forgotten that a supremely skilled driver 
who's only done road racing in Formula One, by and large, can certainly pick up ovals rather quickly if they have the desire and aptitude. So no argument that it was a little bit of a, because I remember having the same reaction like, oh, well, I love Alboreto in a Scandia car on ovals and open wheel. All right, that's, hmm. But again, today it stands out as a bit odd. But if you look back at what took place in 93, plus honestly, there were just a fair amount of F1 drivers coming over to America in general, not super IRL oval stuff, but just in general, it's not uncommon to have a pretty steady string of F1 drivers coming over here and picking up work. So today stands out as odd. Back then, uh, not super strange. Let's go to our man, Tim Falkowitz, who says MP with building relationships, trust and friendships with the drivers being part of the job along with having to report on them, how tough is it balancing all of those things? Well, that's a fun one, Tim. Uh, tough with a few, not with many. Maybe that's normal. I don't know. Uh, I've probably mentioned on the podcast here before, I don't really feel like getting back into all the, the tea all the drama, but you know, I've gone a year or more, um, with not talking with one or two or three IndyCar drivers. And it could be because they have pissed me off to no end or did something really dickish, uh, and made me say to hell with you on a personal relationship front. And there have been a couple that have been extremely pissed at me. Uh, on occasion, I'd say one that stood out was justified for sure. Misunderstanding or just a different view on a topic, but I've had, you know, there's been a couple times where, you know, been at loggerheads with folks. Um, one, and I just mentioned it because it comes to mind because his birthday was yesterday was Dario Franchitti. You know, he readily admits, and I do as well, hey, we love each other the majority of time, but there's a hate aspect as well where we don't talk, and it might be weeks or months or, you know, whatever. And, you know, eventually we make up and everything's good and yada, yada, yada. That happens. It's normal because of the close proximity of what we do in IndyCar and I would say sports cars. I don't see that happening on the NASCAR side because much bigger series, much more popular, and much greater distance maintained between media and drivers in particular. Um, I don't know if I can say team owners and team principals, but at least from what I've observed and also what I've been told by those reporters it's, you know, their relationships, of course, you know, uh, everyone has, you know, some close relationships there, but by and large, it's pretty big separation kept. Uh, I can't speak about the NHRA. I have no clue. Zero. Although I don't think there'd be much separation, but at least for IndyCar and IMSA and just say sports cars in general, which are the two specialties for me, by comparison, they are small paddocks to the others. And we are, you know, just a roaming family 
that you can't really get away from one another. So because of that, Tim, I think that it's a lot easier for folks to have a lot of love or a lot of hate for each other because we are that close and there aren't really those boundaries of, oh, you're a pissant reporter and you're a megastar driver and yeah. Well, I know that some teams try and do that and maintain that. I don't play along with that. So, yeah, it is absolutely part of the balancing act. And I know many of the pressure points for certain drivers. And I know that if I write something that is, you know, unfortunately factual as I see it, meaning if I'm seeing that a driver did something in a race that was really boneheaded and they've done it three or four times before. And I mentioned, look, there's history to this. Yet again, this driver did this maneuver, which has ended up in misery multiple times in the past. And yet again, uh, has done it and it didn't work and ruined their day and the other driver's day. You know, I know those who are going to call or text and give me a what the F and lay into me, um, you know, there. But that doesn't change the fact, Tim, that I have a job to do, even though there are close relationships in most cases here. Uh, ultimately, my job is to report and give you as much truthiness as I can. And sometimes that strays into areas where it might damage relationships either permanently or for a certain duration. I'd rather be the person who does his job to the best of his ability than to just do a little scared dance of trying to make everybody happy uh, at all times because that's not what I'm hired to do. And I don't think that's why we're, if you're a reporter and all you're trying to do is make sure that everybody loves you, you never say anything negative, you never say anything critical, you never speak with honesty, uh, I, I might not have a lot of time for you. I didn't always feel that way, especially when I was newish in the world of reporting and was not nearly as confident in my place in the industry. So it's not like I felt this way all along. I have evolved into this approach my job and the job of other reporters is a fairly well-defined and specific thing and you know if i'm saying the guy's doing a bad job and indeed uh the team is doing wonderfully and they have fantastic results well i'm a big idiot if i write something that isn't flowery or happens to be critical and the team is certainly not achieving its capabilities you could be mad at me. I, I know I wouldn't like to read that, but I've certainly had things written about me when I have underperformed or whether it's on the team side, crew side, management side, whatever, you know, whether it's written or said or whatever, like, I don't know. Um, try not to take too many of these things personally, but it's inevitable. We're human beings, man. Uh, some of us have thicker skins than others. It's not always thick, though. <laughs> it can get pretty dang thin at times. For some people, it's always thin. Uh, mine varies, uh, but I do my best to manage it. But, you know, ultimately, what am I going to be remembered for? 
I don't know, man. I'm just trying to do my job as best as I can and have some integrity and, and truthiness to it. And if that doesn't sit well with everyone that reads the words that I write, it's okay because I know that is never going to happen and it's not an expectation. So that applies to drivers and team owners and whatnot as well. Um, the love you, hate you thing, it's just it's part of the job. Let's go to Ross Porter Marshall. To what degree are IndyCar teams allowed to repair and maintain their engines without Chevy or Honda technical staff getting involved uh, or having to send the unit back to the supplier for repair? Well, Ross, as someone who does uh, a lot of these kinds of things on bigger, cooler motors, uh, the answer would be none. Uh, IndyCar teams do not touch their motors. They do physically touch them, but in terms of getting out spanners, sockets, screwing drivers, uh, they don't do anything to them. Now, I'm talking real, right? If they're changing a motor and they have to disconnect a sensor or whatever, whatever, to pull one out or uh, throw in a new one, that's one thing. But in terms of actual, hey, going to change the plugs on it, going to... Uh, yank the cam cover off going to pretty much anything uh no uh the motor itself that is the domain of the engine suppliers part of the agreement in the lease those motors do not start without a chevy or honda technician plugged in uh, to make that happen so under the modern engine lease rules ross ain't nothing happens to those motors uh, unless it is performed by one of the technicians attached by the brands to that individual team entry. Um, And then again, if there's some sort of deeper level of repair that needs to get done, yeah, it gets yanked and it goes into uh, one of the two transporters if we're at the track or uh, shipped as needed from the uh, whichever shop it might be. Okay, we're going to rattle through and say goodbye here. Uh, Elite Flight says, do you believe that the series opening up the rules a little bit, whether that be allowing chassis competition to return or allowing development of the Kurs unit to gain new manufacturers like Ferrari is a risk that Roger Penske should or would take? I do not believe that they are going to take that risk at all. If you had sent in this question three months ago, two and a half months ago, pre-coronavirus. Well, I mean, really, we learned about the coronavirus in January, but uh, if we go back to a time where the coronavirus wasn't a thing, do I think that IndyCar might put together a new technology plan that says, hey, in the first year, everything's going to be just as it is. Lockdown, bring it in, but don't touch it. The next year, we'll let you do a little more. The next year, a little more. I think that might have happened a gradual opening of things once the new formula was established, once it had run a year, I could see that being a thing. Post-coronavirus, anything that involves spending money where it isn't truly critical, I just don't foresee that happening anytime soon. So it takes stuff like this, which I'd love to have happen, and I believe these things just are they don't just come off the table as option 
they're like thrown out the window and forgotten. Uh, and maybe they'll wander out a couple of years from now and find it. Go, oh yeah. Oh, that thing. Oh, that idea. All right. Well, let's, let's bring it back to talk about, but who knows if it's going to happen. Um, Randy Worley, Marshall, at the beginning of the season, you mentioned something that would have been big if it happened at St. Pete. I think you use the word drama. Are you able to say what that was? Um, if it might've happened? Well, no, because there's still a chance it could happen. So I haven't checked in to see if it's still possibly going to happen as I'm just talking about things, giving you no information. I apologize, but it's part of what I have to do as well is sit on things. There's still a possibility this could indeed happen. So let's just say that I'm going to be truly, truly fascinated in observing um, the first couple of races to see if and what might happen. So when it does happen, you're going to know it. How's that? I can't say what it is, but if it happens, you're going to know it. There's going to be no question about what this drama is, and uh, then we can talk about it some more. Um, Cody DW12, you get the penultimate question. Uh, stupid question. As one person said many years ago, I think it was in a movie, there's no such thing as a stupid question, Cody. Only stupid people who ask questions. Sorry, that wasn't aimed at you. It's just my favorite retort because when people say, oh, there's no such thing as a stupid question, it's like, no, there really is. They're, oh, they're grand, grand questions that are of immense stature in the world of stupidity. I have asked some of them. So, anyways, sorry. Just love that line from the movie. Uh, what would be the best group of IndyCar drivers to road trip with? And what group would be the worst? Huh. Well, my immediate thought goes to Penske because those three, uh, full-time at least, in Power, New Garden, and Pagano are so w- wickedly different personality-wise, amusing as well, annoying as well. Not all of them, but some of them. You know, Simon would be wearing his race suit and probably putting his helmet on. Uh, Joseph would be talking about sushi. Power would be just rambling about some documentary that he saw about the Dalai Lama. Uh, and so, and then just, but jumping around with the attention span of a hummingbird. I mean, this would be, that would be a blast. Part of me also loves the idea of a Ganassi road trip provided Dario was in there with Dixon, uh, Felix, who's a really like Rosenquist is a truly fun and funny guy. And Erickson, I'm not sure. I like Marcus a lot. I just don't know if he's the one who's used to getting picked on the whole time. And if he'd give it back, right, that's the thing. Felix is a hearty little guy. I mean, he's he's going to throw it back and mess with you just as much. Dario is all about that. Dixie is just an assassin that way. I don't know if Marcus is that way. So that actually could be fun. There might be some hurt feelings by the end. So those two jump out. As for the worst, man, you're really just trying to make more people hate me, right? That's not a problem I have. I don't need more people to hate me in IndyCar, but hey, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a shot. Which team might be the worst? 
And we're talking road trip. And when I think road trip, I'm thinking fun and snacks and music and stories and just giving each other a hard time. What would be the worst? All right, I'm I'm rolling here. I'm trying to try again. You, team, there's some one card outfit, so that wouldn't quite work. Um, where do we go? You know, no, nah, not that one. Boy, you you're kind of stumping me here. I mean, part of me says Kimball, Kellett, Kanon, and Bourdais. I, that that just doesn't seem like a fun road trip, right? Whereas the three Penske drivers are totally different, but very playful. I don't see a lot of like bonded humor, inside joke, yuckety yuck between Charlie, Dalton, Tony, and Sebastian, right? I mean, you know that I mess with Sebastian all the time, and Tony is kind of that way. Charlie, I don't know if he'd be in with in for that. Dalton, I truly don't know. I mean, I like the kid from the interactions I've had with him, but I don't really know him. So that one might be a little awkward. You know, uh, two older guys, 40-plus guys in Kanan and Seb. Charlie, who's, what, mid-30s, something like that. Dalton, who's a pup. Might be a generationally awkward thing. I mean, I'd be trying to light the fire the whole time and just F with everybody. It'd be a bit of a... Uh, experiment for me just seeing if I could create hatred and division where it didn't exist so yeah that that's one that came to mind the other one if I'm just talking for me hashtag personally might be Aaron McLaren SP and I love Pato I truly love the kid I mess with him harder than most and he does the same right back Oliver I love as well um, I just wonder if you know, the guy who's in his late 40s with the kids who added their ages together and they're still not as old as me. I'm just wondering if there'd be such a generational divide where it'd kind of be awkward, where they talk to each other a lot and kind of the old guy in the back seat just kind of gets left alone and listens to like old 60s soul music with my Bluetooth headphones. So, yeah. And I don't, I have a feeling, I actually don't have a feeling for their snack game. Like, that's another concern. Good snacks really do make a road trip. I need to get a better feel for where Pato and Oliver might fall there. If you were to throw in Alonzo, that might be amusing, but I just don't know if he'd be that guy. I think he spent so many years of his life sequestered as the star of stars and behind the the golden rope kind of thing. Like, would he just let his hair down and, you know, drink an 80 ounce thing of Mountain Dew mixed with Dr. Pepper and then barf on the side of the road and then just try and mow down like five 7-Eleven hot dogs. I don't see that. And that's where you, that's where the guy becomes a legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. World champion, whatever. That's where the guy becomes a legend. I don't know if he'd be that guy. That so, yeah, that road trip might suck as well. All right, final one. Final, final one. And, hey, we're not even going to hit an hour and a half on this episode. That makes me really happy. Kyle, H, B, Donnelly, Marshall. I'm watching old Indy 500s on the YouTubes. It says, let's thank all the Internet gods for YouTube in these coronavirus times. And I have two questions. Do you make a cameo in any of the broadcasts? I was thinking that you might have been 
one of the silhouette crew people in the garage while Greg Ray was napping during pre-race in 97. I don't know. Uh, I think I've watched the 97 race once, probably when I got home from the 97 race and it was recorded on my VCR. (laughs) So I haven't seen it since then. I have no idea. Um, and I did five in a row and I then retired air quote retired from the team side at the end of 2001. So I really don't know if I'm in any of that, any of the race stuff other than like a dot flashing bond pit lane. So I don't know. Uh, the last part though, Kyle says two is the 1997 to 2000 IRL engine note best described as farting tooting or otherwise. Um, huh well i think we might have to wind it back to 97 to 99 i think 2000 was the year where we went to the flat plane cranks and it sounded a lot better i might be wrong about that i'm wrong about many things boy the original naturally aspirated engines kind of a howling more of a howling growler type thing they just sounded like nascar v8s Uh, they really i mean eh. We did a lot of races back then where NASCAR trucks were, you know, maybe the Friday night race and we were the Saturday night race or whatever. And obviously there, you could tell the difference between the two, but they weren't massively different. It wasn't night and day different of the sounds coming out of the exhausts compared to the cart indie cars that time, which were turbocharged and just sounded so amazing. But yeah, that kind of, I hate to say it, but just dumb sound the first couple of years in the IRL with those V8s. It wasn't very endearing. And I think it's just because it sounded too much, too close to stock cars. And knowing that stock cars are already there and a thing and what they are, like having our open wheel race cars sound kind of like theirs. It just, I thought it really took away from the uniqueness of what we did. And so I was really thankful to hear, sorry, as I try and swallow some water here to get my voice back, which has kind of been going away a little bit. Um, When we went to the flat plane cranks and we got that higher pitch, that was so, so nice. So much nicer, at least. So, yeah, that's what comes to mind. Um, The other thing I'll just mention, because it was was true so you might know this i love the sound of racing engines i might on my podcast post a lot of in-car audio and ambient audio all to celebrate the sound of the internal combustion engine there wasn't a lot to celebrate with those original naturally aspirated irl engines from a sound standpoint because they were so unbearably loud now once more, and maybe this is just me being soft, but you had NASCAR, you had the blaring sound of 40-plus cup cars screaming around whatever oval with their crazy V8s deafening, just deafening. It just didn't seem to fit well for hashtag me personally when we had indie cars running around with absolutely blaring deafening v8s i mean it was 
painful at times, depending upon the venue we were at, how close we were just on pit lane to the cars. I can only imagine what it was like sitting in the grandstands uh, and the amount of ear protection that was needed. Um, This is just, it was not a pleasant thing as it stood out to me. Painful at times. I do recall, and this is just something that, you know, maybe speaks to this. I do recall how ear protectors really became a widely seen thing in gasoline alleys and under tents and wherever we were racing in the IRL back then because just warming up the motors it was so loud that all of a sudden it seemed like, hey, we're going to fire up in a moment. Everyone went to get their ear protectors, put in the little foamy guys, whatever it might be. And I forget who it was. I think it might have been Foyt, maybe Menards. I'm not sure, but just did the kind of duh, obvious thing and got a couple of, I think it might have been Super Trap mufflers, uh, racing mufflers, and made little attachments that mounted to them that they could easily wedge into the exhaust outlets. And it was just... (laughs) Oh, it was such a needed thing. Also one of those things where you're like, why didn't any of us think of this beforehand? And all of a sudden, at least warming the motors in the garages, you know, at Charlotte, at wherever, Kentucky, it was no longer a my ears are bleeding and my eyes are bleeding type scenario. And this was just proven bore out yet again, Kyle, where I... Always remember this instance. I just don't remember where it was because those tracks kind of bled together at some point. Um, there was one team. I think it might have been Sinden, Jeff Sinden's team. Um, what was it? Arizona Racing Services or Sinden Racing Services, whatever it was. Uh, I think we were somewhere and we were next to them in the garage. And kind of sort of everybody warms up their motors in around the same time. You know, the session starts at specific time. Everyone more or less is on the same schedule of needing to warm the motors, get things packed and headed towards pit lane. And I seem to recall there was an instance where uh, maybe it was Dr. Jack Miller's car. Whatever it was, everyone was warming up their motors. Everybody had their mufflers in place except them. And... I just remember staring daggers at them and looking at those who were on the team on the other side of them in the garage and the team across them from the garage and just in the general area, everyone was just like, what the F is wrong with you? Because we had kind of figured out, let's not make our ears explode and use these inexpensive mufflers and plug them in when we're going to warm up and pull them out when we're done. And why are you being the one group of dummies who's like, hey, dude, dude, oh, sorry. All of you are like having vertigo and falling over because the sound is making your head compress and expand. And so I don't remember the exact scenario, but I do know that afterwards it was me or someone else like, hey, Put some goddamn mufflers on that thing. And I seem to recall they did after that, and it was no longer a problem. So 
that's a little bit of sound. Kyle, I have no idea if my monkey ass was on any of the broadcasts and the five indies I did from 97 through 2001, but if so, I apologize. All right, it is now almost an hour 35 into the show, so I lied. We did go over an hour and a half, but you all know to expect that my timekeeping capabilities, um, they suffer a wee bit. Um, Nonetheless, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is your Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. All of y'all whose names I read earlier, send me those DMs with your email addresses. And thanks again as well to Bell Racing Helmets USA. I look forward to speaking to you next week.